Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor, host of Jam Tomorrow. Our second season is out now. On today's show, Rishi Sunak has invoked the will of the people over Rwanda. Why is he upping the populist rhetoric? And crucially, why is it not working for him? Plus, as the polls look increasingly dire for the Tories, can Keir Starmer avoid a bacon sandwich moment? And do people really care what the sun thinks anymore? Let's meet the panel. First, it's columnist Hannah Fern, who specialises in social affairs. Hello, Hannah. Hello. According to the Centre for Cities, we're an average of 10 grand each worse off since 2010. We're levelled down, in other words. But we're not all in it together, are we? We are not. Uh, This is a really interesting piece of research from the think tank. They specialise in what's going on in UK cities. And they really were comparing how much average disposable income we've either gained or lost over the last 10 years. Uh, Surprise, surprise, most people have lost quite a lot. Um, People of Aberdeen are £45,000 worse off on average compared to where they should be now. So this is comparing what the trajectory of kind of growth and productivity and so on was in each city and where it is now. Burnley's average of £28,000 down if you live there. Um, But actually, weirdly, there are seven cities where people seem to be doing better. They include York, Derby, Slough, a bit confused by this, thought this can't be right. If you're looking at, you know, the cost of living and so on, cost of housing, especially in cities like York, how can this be correct? So I had a little drill down. And basically, this is due to there being genuinely underwhelming pre-2010. So they weren't doing well as local economies in that time. Their performance has much improved. Um, But bad luck if you're somewhere that was doing well, like Aberdeen, and is now drastically suffering. So really interesting bit of research if you're a a local city economy type nerd like me. (laughs) Go and have a look. (laughs) Fascinating. Thanks. Hugo Rifkind writes for The Times and he's just been nominated for a press award. Hello, Hugo. What's the award? It's Critic of the Year. Thanks very much. Yes. Who are you up against? Um, (laughs) Well, I'm up against a bunch of people, but I'm particularly concerned about being up against Jay Rayner because I was up against him for the same award last year (laughs) and he won it. Uh, And in fact, this year, so when you get nominated for a press award, as I'm sure you know, uh, what you really want (laughs) is, what, what you really want is loads of tweets congratulating you. And it had got to about lunchtime and I'd had none. And so I had to sort of like tweet it myself in a sort of for humble brag way, hoping people would notice. And one of the first people to say, oh, congratulations, was Jay Rayner, which was so pointed because he knew he was up for the same one. And he also knew that he beat me in it last year. You're going to be staring sly. staring at each other across those uh, those posh awards tables. You're going to be, the face-off's going to be. So, but, or yeah. someone's going to be putting the camera on you when Jay wins. Yeah, well, there's that. Or, you know, it'll be one of the other eight people. Hugo, Akir Starmer gave a speech today praising the National Trust. Some people have been complaining that it's too woke, the National Trust, that is, not Keir Starmer. (laughs) Too many displays about slavery, not enough peace and quiet and scones and whatever. Are you a member? I'm not. It's far too woke for me, the National Trust. All those big houses. Um, No, it's look, I can sort of, I can't decide whether this is really clever politics or really stupid politics because there is, I think, mileage in this business of conservatives attacking national institutions, conservatives being meant to be the party who are in favour of all national institutions and actually often don't really seem to like Britain very much. And if you can be on the side of the National Trust against the Conservative Party, that's quite good positioning for Labour. The problem is that conservatives aren't really attacking the National Trust that much. Occasionally, there's a bit of grumbling. They also mentioned the RNLI that the Tories are supposed to have attacked. I guess they've, they've attacked lifeboats for rescuing migrants now and again. It feels like a slightly bogusy battle and I slightly think they should have held their fire and that there was actually something to object to. It's like when you write a column and there isn't actually a peg and you have to make one up. <laughs> it's a bit like that. 
She laughs hollowly, recognising that entirely. <laughs> We've all done it. <laughs> but you were quite impressed by Keir Starmer's I quite today, liked it today. I mean, I know what you mean about the RNLI thing being quite a tangential mm. peg, but on the other hand, you know, to stop the boats rhetoric dominates everything at the moment. And it is weird to say brave volunteers picking up, you know, people literally about to lose their lives in the yeah. sea being a problem. Um, I quite liked his sort of attack on woke values though I think it was quite a sensible attack rather than yeah. like going into it I, I quite liked it I'm not saying it's not sensible it's just kind of random I mean mm. look three's a feature right and he's sort of got one and a half it's not enough <laughs> yeah. you've yeah. gone too soon Keir okay before we start Roz you mentioned Jam Tomorrow there's a new series coming up I think that's right so for listeners who don't know about it what's Jam Tomorrow all about Jam Tomorrow is about the hopes people had at the end of World War II for a better society and what happened to those hopes. And in the first series, we looked at the big things, the NHS, schools, housing, things like that. And in the new series, we're drilling down. So looking at things like national service, the big wave of British emigration to Australia, coal. So it's going to be fascinating. Sounds great. So what's in the first edition coming up next week? The first one is about contraception. Oh. And uh, there's a lot more to that story than just the pill, because obviously you'd think, yeah, post-war contraception pill, right? But it's, it's, it's more than that. But did you know that, by the way, uh, that the, the um, Vatican actually was on the point of endorsing the pill? No, I no, did not. It was. Tell us more. It was, it was really uh, in favour of it because it thought that there would be fewer abortions and it would make married couples happier. And uh, they almost did. And then they did a U-turn and decided no. And now we also talk about the influencers who are trying to get women to come off the pill. Yeah. Um, which is uh, a There's new There's a lot thing. of fascination in tracking apps and things like that, which terrifies me among younger people. Dangerous. Yeah, very dangerous. <laughs> very dangerous. Though. Very risky. Thanks, Ross. That sounds great. We'll all have a listen. It's out now, which is Tuesday probably, or it's even earlier if you're one of our most loyal supporters. Rishi Sunak pushed his Rwanda legislation through the Commons last week with less trouble than he might have expected, Lee Anderson notwithstanding. Then he got Bolshe telling the House of Lords to accept the will of the people and not block it. Hannah, Boris Johnson was fond of talking about the will of the people when it came to Brexit. But is this new rhetorical ground for Sunak? Not entirely. He, in his first big speech where he set out his five priorities post Liz Truss, he threw in uh, the term the people's priorities, which I really hate because it also reminds me of the people's princess. <laughs> it's like that kind of weird phraseology that people, you know, that's just politically attacked to something that, that really doesn't make any sense. And I do think there's a difference between Johnson's use of it, which was obviously attached to a solid election victory uh, for pro-Brexit and this which is just some ideas I've had that I think I ought to stand for um, that aren't backed up in any significant polling. Uh, on the real priorities the NHS for example which consistently ranks second in all the YouGov polling about what the most important election issues are in the coming year NHS is always second to the economy and he's way off target on that and all on his plans on that so um, it's a strange rhetoric for him talking about the will of the people when it's specifically misleading on what people actually care about. And when he has recognised what people care about, he, he's not acting upon it. What do we know about whether the people actually support the Rwanda bill? This one's weird. The polls are all over the place. So there's one poll that suggests that 42% of the adult voting age population do agree with deportation without right to appeal. So that's the strongest form of the Rwanda bill. But that Another part of that same poll, so another question within that same uh, demographic suggested that 40% 
also think Labour should reverse it. Now, that sounds really strange when you hear them together, but they're not incompatible. It is possible to both agree with this policy and yet just want this all to stop now because it's not what people really care about. Um, and immigration, again, it ranks below the economy, below cost of living, below the NHS on general priorities, and in some it even ranks below housing. So it's not as weird as it sounds to have those two things next to each other in the same polling. Is it really about suggesting that the Commons represents the will of the people and the Lords doesn't? Because that's an odd reflex for a Conservative leader who has not noticeably been trying to reform the Lords. No, it is odd. It is odd for any Conservative. It's definitely a kind of back implication, isn't it? If you if you interrogate it too far, that's what you end up with. And I think it's actually quite a dangerous tactic for a Conservative to, to start playing. Um it does suggest that this is all he's got left. It's a product of the frustration of, uh, you know, completely empty government. But it would leave a dangerous legacy for whatever survives of this form of conservatism. Yeah, I keep hearing sort of rumours that he might even go to the country in May for a sort of back me on Rwanda or sack me kind of ticket. But I find that I do find that hard to believe. Hugo, Sunak's personal popularity ratings have been tanking. Mm. What is he getting wrong? Well... <laughs> Look, it's easy to say he's not very good at being prime minister. I think it's sort of worse than that. He's not very good at being prime minister Rishi Sunak, you know, because we can all see how prime minister Rishi Sunak ought to work. The guy's a technocrat. He's a wonk. He's a bean counter. And bearing in mind he's going to lose and was always going to lose. And from the moment he took the job, he knew he was going to lose. Mm -hmm. The Rishi Sunak that makes sense is the one who goes, everything's an app. I'm going to fix the. I'm going to. I'm going to fix uh, illegal immigration with an app. I'm going to fix the NHS with an app. I'm going to do it all with apps. You know, technocracy all the way, all that kind of stuff. Instead, he's sort of caught in this thing where he's like, he's like someone who's. I mean, he literally is somebody who started a job and doesn't know how to do it, and so is sort of observing the priorities of people all around him that aren't his own priorities that he has no emotional connection with. So, what, I mean, what you were saying before about this kind of will of the people Parliament stuff—that's purest weird, stuffy Tory John Redwoodism, right? It's got nothing to do with Rishi. Nothing to do with his politics. Nothing to do with where he's come from. He's like he's he's trying to fit in with the big boys. It looks fake and it seems fake. And it is. I mean, he's you know before when he was chancellor, rather he thought Rwanda was nonsense. You had um, I mean, they all thought Rwanda was nonsense. You know, cleverly called it batshit. Uh, Sunak merely thought it wouldn't work. Yeah, he went with it anyway to sort of to, to suck up to Suella Bravman. He's not a stupid man. He knows that. If people are concerned about immigration, what net net migration last year was 765,000 and people coming off boats was 29,000. He knows one of those numbers is a lot smaller than the other number. He's but he's so he's there is a bogusness behind everything he does and people can feel it. What a different Rishi Sunak would be doing would be saying, this is what I started with on everything. This is where we are now. This is what I hope to do in the future. These are the skills I bring to the table. And I don't think he'd win, but he wouldn't look like an idiot. You know, Why do you think people get so blown off course in that in this way? That he can't just stand there and be actually himself because he knows he's going to lose anyway. I think he's got a bit of flailing panic because he knows it's going badly. I think he gets distracted by things that he doesn't want to be doing. I think it's easy when you're outside the tent to underestimate quite how important it is when Lee Anderson's shouting at you. Mm. You know, how, quite how important it is when your backbenchers, when you've got the 1922 committee harumphing in their way, you kind of think surely he can just ignore them because how much worse can it be? Mm. And I think he's just sort of not capable of doing that. But it just gives him this, this aura of calamity. I mean, you look at what happened last week, right? 
putting aside the fact that the policy is nonsense, it's his policy. He pushed it. He had a rebellion. He fought off the rebellion. He reduced the rebels to a tiny, tiny number. He pushed it through the commons, even though he's opposed on both sides. And now he's about to push it through the lords. That's quite impressive. And yet he manages to make it look as a, look like a failure. And, you he, know. and he runs the press conference as if it was a failure. Precisely, doing a yeah. kind of, you know, image management session. Yeah. He um, sort of exudes weakness. Yeah. And small boat crossings have actually fallen by third as well. I mean, he hasn't completely failed on that without even Rwanda being close to being enacted. Well, exactly. The, the, the irony of this as well, they keep attacking Labour over Labour's got no policy. Labour does have a policy. Labour's policy is the thing the Tories are doing at the moment that's working, but a bit more of it. You know, whereas they don't want to talk about the successes they're having that don't involve Rwanda, because that means they've got no justification for Rwanda, which is the sort of um, sort of self-harm that somebody like Rishi Sunak completely excels at, which is so unnecessary. It's going to be a terrible irony if he ends up being remembered for Rwanda after, given, as you say, that he is fundamentally a technocrat. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, you talk about how he's going to be remembered. I think there is, I'm sort of, I'm loath to say this. I almost hate myself for saying it. There is a possibility that 10 years from now, it is a matter of normality, of course, that uh, wealthy, affluent Western nations send their unwanted illegal migrants to far-flung places where they don't want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's perfectly possible yeah, that that, is the, I think you're right that becomes that. the trend across the Western world. Yeah. And then so people might remember Rwanda very differently from how it looks at the moment. That doesn't change the fact that he's failing at doing it and it looks preposterous now. Yeah. Hannah, the will of the people is supposed to be enacted through democracy, but the populist reflex is, is to suggest that democracy alone can't do that and you need a strong figure that will bypass all this you know, tedious democratic <laughs> crap and get to the heart of things. Does populism always need that strong man, or I suppose potentially it could be a strong woman figure whom you could trust to represent your real interests, a Trump or a Bolsonaro? Does it always need that? And is that one of the reasons why the Tories are failing at it? Arguably, that's exactly what populism is. As you've described it, this kind of strong figure, whether man or woman, telling you, I know what you really want. I I understand you better than you understand yourselves and that I, I know your own interests and I will always represent you and them and not, you know, whatever else this architecture of democracy is. You know, that's what Le Pen goes for in France with this kind of strong woman image, as you say. There's also in Argentina, Javier Milei, is that how you pronounce his name? I never know. Uh, saying that Feminism this week is against women's nature. So, you know, standing up and trying to say to women, I understand you better than other women understand you. Um, Back me. So I think it does require this personality cult. And and that is a problem for Sunak if he's going to go down this line because he doesn't appear to have much. Yeah, of course, uh, Le Pen has never been uh, elected. Uh, that's very that's, true. Uh, I, I but do wonder if she it always has to be a man. That. That, that's what she's aiming for, isn't yeah, it? That yeah. I, I know you better than you know yourselves line. Um, Jeremy Hunt has been dropping hints about tax cuts again. Again, it's like every weekend there's another, or oh, we might have a tax cut. It seems that the idea of reducing inheritance tax has fallen out of favour because they've realised that that really only benefits the, the better off and their children. So a, a cut in the basic rate of income tax or to national insurance is on the table again. But the polling suggests that people would rather have basic public services working properly. So are tax cuts a populist move? Well, first of all, inheritance tax, I suspect it's actually off the table because it's pointless. If they actually, if you look at the figures, it won't raise anywhere near enough to make it worth the righteous indignation of the Mail and the Telegraph and, and so on. It's just pointless exercise and they've probably worked out that they can't be bothered with dealing with that. Um, 
I don't think that tax cutting and we're entering a technical recession now on the news this week. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily populist in that environment. And, you know, Labour have been open and honest about looking to find points to sweeten the blow. National insurance as it currently is doesn't really work very well. I think that there are a lot of ways you could redesign it and sell it as a tax cut and that doing that would actually be quite sensible and isn't necessarily a populist in its nature. But like you said, overall, again, this is it's separate from listening to what the apparent will of the people is. People want better public services. Um, I saw a brilliant comparison today where polling was looking at the... the um, concern about crumbling schools and the, the fallout of the Rock scandal. And people genuinely, obviously care about their children being crushed to death under crumbling concrete. And they don't mind paying a little bit more if that means that we know that, you know, things like um, building safety is improved. Uh, so tax cutting in, in and of itself is not a vote winner at the moment. They're just not listening. Well, it's great news for Labour. It's just such a disaster. I think it's also sort of what happens when you have a government that is all either too rich or too old to have mortgages or pay rent. You know, Absolutely. the amount you would have to reduce my taxes by to make up for my mortgage going up. Mm. It's like, I mean, that's just obviously not going to happen. You know, the, you're, on the one hand, you have a lot of people facing life-changing sums in terms of rising mortgage costs or in terms of rising rent or even if they're not life-changing they're considerable and then you have then you have uh, Jeremy Hunt expecting people to get excited about even quite a large sum even what is it 430 pounds a year but there are people and particularly in the the band of floating voters that they're going for there are people who are looking at those kind of figures well maybe once a month maybe every two months whatever you know and so it's just it, it's pissing in the wind but conversely, as you, as you say, there are quite a lot of people uh, relative to the past who've actually paid off their mortgages and who aren't touched by this at all. But likewise, they're also not, I mean, as a cohort, uh, that likely to be paying that much tax because mm. because they're, they're generally yeah. beyond their, their peak earning years. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is one of the reasons why uh, interest rate rises have failed to cut through, isn't it? Because uh, you're, you're aiming at a smaller, a smaller cohort, so you can't get the effects you would normally get by raising interest rates in the same way. Is this a populist government, though? I mean, I think Boris Johnson I would describe as a populist government, but is this one populist? I think it's too chaotic for that. I think, um, no, I mean, look, I think a lot of what this government does makes much more sense if you realise that the electorate they're aiming at are the precise bit that they're worried might vote for Reform UK if they don't vote for them. Uh, and you can, until you're blue in the face, say that is at best, even for you, what, a quarter of your vote? Perhaps probably far less. But that's the, if, if, if you regarded that as the entire electorate, yes, it's a populist government. But because actually the electorate is much bigger than that, even, even the conservative vote is much bigger than that, there are kind of aspiring populist government with many po policies that aren't popular, mm. which is dumb. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, can you be populist when you're not very popular? <laughs> it's, it's, it's trying really hard to be populist. <laughs> Just like it's trying really hard at fixing everything else. It's unpopulist. <laughs> Hugo, there was a kerfuffle on Friday about a clip that showed Sunak in a very bad light. He was appearing to laugh at and walk away from a woman who was telling him about her daughter's problems with the NHS. Uh, hands up, I retweeted it because it came from Sky News and I thought that was reliable. But the channel later released a longer clip that put Sunak in a somewhat better light. Can we learn anything from this? I felt slightly uncomfortable, put it that way, about my part in it. It's a good rule of thumb that every time you want to tweet something, don't. Uh, <laughs> and you'll never look back and go, or you'll very rarely look back and go, gosh, I wish I'd tweeted that. 
you know, whereas you might often just sort of be glad you didn't. Uh, more broadly than that, no, I mean, this isn't a surprise now. You know, uh, the, the, our next election, just like our last election, is going to be full of this kind of stuff. Some of it will be fair. Some of it will be unfair. Some of it, when it's unfair, will be exploited by political parties knowing it's unfair uh, and activists knowing it's unfair. This is just the sort of the environment we we live in. Actually, for the government, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel bad because plenty of people retweeted it and then they get to say, no, this is the real thing. And then that manages to damage trust in all the people who retweeted it in the first place and so on, which for, for the government, I think they'd regard as a win. So, um, you know, these things do sort of slightly fix themselves while leaving the sort of drip, drip, drip degrading of public trust generally. I, I think, think, I think you're, you're all right. I think you're too hard on yourself, though. I don't think it may, showed... It obviously did change the tenor slightly, but I don't think it showed him in a, in a great light. I don't think it improved the image that much. He still didn't respond in a human way initially. It, it, it felt uncomfortable, even on the longer view, I think. I suppose it just worried me. I mean, this was not a deep fake. This was no, no. Uh, this was actual footage um, of an encounter, and it, it's it's possible to make things look, I think, worse than they do when, when even when you're not deep faking. And um, the, but so do news stories often. What's yeah. the top line or the nugget of every news story is like the strongest possible line. And you know, when you've read to the end, it might feel more nuanced than it does in the first paragraph. I don't think it's any different. And I do think that don't think you've got much to learn from the experience. I think he's got a lot to learn. Yeah. He needs to make sure that he can't be clipped in such a way that makes him look so you know, sort of unfeeling. But you can you can manufacture an objection to to any clip. I mean, so I was writing about Donald Trump today, and it was I was reminded there was a bit. It was a few weeks back. Donald the clip went round of Trump saying, "I will be a dictator." Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. and then it was clarified because you had the longer trip, and what he'd actually said was, "I will be a dictator," but only on the first day. Now that's not good either, right? <laughs> no. But that's all kind of like fake news. He didn't say he was going to be a dictator. He was going to be a dictator for one day. Like like admitting you're going to be a dictator for one day normally would be a fail. But so we have this whole dynamic that if the first story is bad and the next story is less bad, then the first story is negated. Mm. I don't know. I mean, we just mm. how can we live like that? Yeah, we can't. That's why I wrote a book about the future of trust. <laughs> Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Hannah. Hero, first of all, is Jolie Briley and her team at the campaign known as Pregnant Then Screwed. Um, she has done some brilliant campaigning this week with all the people who follow her um, on Instagram and other sites. So she'd heard from parents who were trying to register for the free hours of childcare that come in from age two in, in April and had heard time after time that people's codes weren't working and that their nurseries were rejecting their application. And initially the government just said, no, there's no issue. There is no problem with this. So Briley went uh, online and put up a, a survey and thousands of people responded and, and then the government had to accept that there was a massive problem and they fixed it. And uh, if this applies to you, by the way, from the 15th of February, you can use your new code and it should all be fixed for you now. So good luck with that. But brilliant work from you know a bit of kind of community campaigning and sort of something sorted out quickly and just the fact that the initial response is always no then there's no problem just get on with it there's no problem and clearly there was a massive code issue with the website and now it's finally fixed 
How about villain? So villain, Hugo slightly stole my thunder on this one because he's already brought up the housing situation. But um, my villains, villains, plural, are the Tory advisers proposing this 99% mortgage as a solution to the housing crisis. It's complete nonsense. More stupidity and failure to engage with the size of the problem. Accessing a 99% mortgage won't solve the fact that for most, you know, ordinary income households, the house price itself is the barrier. It's not a problem with the deposit. It's a problem with the entire structure of the system uh, and, and the constant failure to understand the scale and breadth of the problem drives me nuts. This Rachel Reeves wants uh, longer mortgages. Are those any better? I actually wrote a long read about 40-year mortgages. They actually are, I think, better. But you're running into the fact that most people getting a mortgage are now in their mid-30s or even 40s. And then you're talking about running mortgages well into retirement age traditionally. And so that comes up with its own bunch of issues. But it is probably better than a 99% mortgage, which will be useless for a lot of people. Dead and still in debt. Yeah, Yeah. it's sobering, isn't it? Uh, Hugo, who's your hero? Uh, I feel surprised myself for saying this, but my hero of the week is the king. Uh, because of uh, his decision to share what somebody, and I should know who, but I don't, described on Twitter as his anus horribilis. Uh, uh, <laughs> Prince uh, King Charles. It's not, it's not quite anus, is it's it, not though? Quite, well, it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the neighbouring area. Never mind. Um, but, um, <laughs> look, if I were having prostate trouble, I'm not sure I'd want to write a column about it even. He shared it with, with the nation. And you've got a lot of people going, oh, well, I think I've heard a bit too much about that now. But referrals are way up. People contacting sort of charities are way up. Uh, it's a really, I think, sort of remarkable and quite brave thing for him to, to have done in the face of the sniggering of the world. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and actually, you think, sort of, I don't know, like, well done. Yeah. I think. Yeah, agreed. Uh, villain. Okay, I have five villains. Five villains. And I also, part of me wonders if they're actually heroes, but I wanted to talk about them anyway. Five African grey parrots at Lincolnshire Wildlife Park were removed from public display in 2020 because they were swearing at visitors. Uh, This problem, although they were removed from public display, this problem has spread and the parrots they're with have now all started swearing, which is obviously bad, bad parrot behaviour. These parrots all, I think there's now, what, five five plus three, that'd be eight of them, have all now been released into a big flock of 100 parrots in the hope that the the greater flock of parrots is going to sort of cancel out this behavior and modify it down there was this fantastic uh, quote from a park official saying there is a risk that we end up with a hundred swearing parrot <laughs> parrots but we're hoping not so those parrots i think are the villains i think these parrots have been around my house my toddler <laughs> dropped the f-bomb this week <laughs> this is a difficult one i mean the king or jolie Brearley. Uh, it's it's a tough I, I think i will go for the king yeah, that's okay. I'll back that. I think that's, that's yeah. actually very brave. Okay. Well, my dad died of prostate cancer, and I know someone else who's currently got terminal prostate cancer. So it's it's on it's on my mind at the moment. So that is yeah. Let's let's agree, uh, King, for once on this podcast, which is perhaps not as pro royal as it could be, especially uh, now we don't have Ian Dunt with us. Ladies and gentlemen, the King and villain. Oh, it's a tough one. I mean, you know, mortgages. I think it has to be the parrots. I'm sorry. That's I'm okay. sorry, Hannah. But the parrots I'm not... are very entertaining. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm going to, I'm fascinated to see if these parrots actually do contaminate their uh, If you end up with 100 parrots. sweary parrots, that'd <laughs> yeah. be pretty good. It's like the way you get parakeets all across London now. Yeah. If instead yeah. of just having parakeets all across London, if all across Britain we have F-bombing parrots, <laughs> and you'll be able to trace it right back to these five, that'd be amazing. We've just been talking about whether Rishi Sunak was misrepresented in that Sky footage, but Keir Starmer has received plenty of shade too. 
The Sun has suggested that when he was a barrister, he represented some particularly unpleasant criminals when he didn't have to. His job as Director of Public Prosecutions has also been used to attack him over the failure to prosecute Jimmy Savile and over the Postmaster scandal. Hugo, if you ask many of the public, they say they don't have a clear sense of who Starmer is and what he stands for. Is that just a hazard of opposition or is he partly to blame for it? I'm not sure he's partly to blame for it. I think he's partly responsible for it. Uh, I'm, I think if we say he's to blame for it, we say it's a it's a problem, and I'm not sure it is a problem. I think it's quite it's quite deliberate. Um, you know, he's he's aware of where he is. He's aware of what, what the what the polls look like. He's aware of who the government are. Not frightening the horses, as it were, is a good strategy. By the same token, I mean these the kind of Tory attacks on him for being the exemplar of everything woke from a sort of legal background being responsible for all kinds of laws and 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 judgments to which he was only tenuously involved i don't think i mean i i think that's ludicrous i don't think it's as petty and likely to be unsuccessful as many people do if you look at american politics at the moment the woke thing is really important by which i mean this sort of vague nebulous sense of objection to woke nonsense as it may be, is behind a lot of hostility towards the Democrats, is behind a lot of the sense that this that the country has changed in ways that normal people don't like, and these are the people who did it. And in purely political terms, the idea of tying Keir Starmer very closely to that, whether you're going back to linking him to human, human rights law, whether you're going back to um, him being responsible why some people didn't get sent to jail when perhaps they should have done, all that kind of stuff, making him the kind of a totem of this sort of uh, nebulous and frankly bollocksy shift leftwards that people feel society has has done, mm. uh, I think could be more successful than the likes of us who are inclined to sneer at it generally uh, expect it would be. Because I mean, lawyers have often got stick, you know, first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers and that kind of thing. But they're trained to be able to argue both sides of a case, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do their jobs properly. Yeah. That used to be seen as a good qualification for being a politician. Lots of PMs have been former lawyers, including Tony Blair. Why is it now used as a slur? Why are they now able to deploy it as a slur? Well, it's easy. Uh, and you have um, a government. I mean, the government keeps having fights with lawyers, right? Uh, so that's helpful as well. It's weirdly, it's it's odd that it has more traction than, for example, attacking Rishi Sunak for the various investments he was involved with in his past. Mm. When you think he did like directly profit from them, whereas a a lawyer, and particularly a sort of you know sort of uh, civil funded human rights lawyer, gets paid anyway. Um, but um, yeah, I, I guess they because, do it because it works. I think that's because people understand what a lawyer is, and they can think about good and bad sides of the law, but they don't understand complex investment portfolios and mm. so on. So it's it's easier to get stick in people's minds. Well, I'm interested in what you said about maybe people not knowing who he is being an advantage. Is there an advantage to kind of holding back, you know, in, until the election campaign when you're going to get the attention to reveal the real Keir Starmer? Yes, totally. I mean, I forget who it was who made the brilliant observation recently. It was Jim Pickard in the, in the Financial Times pointed out that you look at polls now and you compare them with the pending election. In midterm, pre-election, when you ask people how they're going to vote in a poll, they think to themselves, do I want the government or do I want someone else? And then when you come to an election, they think literally, which one of these things do I want? So at the moment, uh, it's not really in Keir Starmer's interest to to formalise the everything else. That being said, I think, I mean, Labour policy at any rate is a lot more clear than people give it credit for a lot of the time. Keir Starmer himself, 
I don't know, there's not that many politicians who have a sort of strong and imposing personality in a manner that works in their favor. You know, most of the politicians who who, who are sort of uh, attention-grabbing characters are Marmite-ish at best. So I guess, I don't know, Kistama is um, presumably no more weird and boring than than the rest of us, but just isn't um, isn't shouting about the less boring bits. Well, Hannah, I mean, people are like most likely to describe Starmer as boring, that if you ask yeah. them to come up with an adjective, that's what they say. But he has also been completely ruthless in changing the Labour Party and reversing some of the promises he made when he was elected leader. Can you be both? And Are we getting to the stage where we're actually seeing the advantage to being both of yeah, these I things in the public imagination? These kind of polls about using one word to describe someone's character, I find them really lame because... One word often doesn't, well, for a start, it's it's completely over-reduces <laughs> the complexity of someone's presentation, their work and so on. And it also reduces words to having one meaning when often they don't. So boring can be a benefit given that the current chaos, you know, is just all over the place. Ruthlessness, again, can be seen in two ways. It can be ruthless as in cutthroat and cruel, and that could be a negative. But ruthless can also mean getting a job done without too much fuss and bother about it, just seeing, you know, seeing what the issue is and attacking it in a straightforward manner. So I don't think the the polls that that gather, you know, one word answers to what people uh, exemplify understand that ambiguity um, and they bother me for that reason also sunak is seen as useless and out of touch both entirely worse than boring so. also also two words how come he gets two well that they're the top two. Oh, i see <laughs> <laughs> we can all remember the sun's front page in 2015 of ed Miliband eating a bacon sandwich it was actually taken the year before and during the uh, local elections nerd point but they held you know they used they it on to they it. held on to it and they used it for the uh, or it came out again at the time of the general election how do you stop yourself from being bacon sandwich? Is it even possible? Well, number one, my grandmother would say never eat in public. <laughs> no, I mean, it's oh, all of those things. First of all, see where the bombs might fall. So, yeah, don't kind of ride horses, pick up children that might be sick on your head. Pick big ideological fights off script in the street with random voters. Um, but also, I think, reacting with humour when these things happen, rather than seeming to take it personally out. One of the problems for Ed Miliband was that he did look kind of weirdly damaged afterwards. Rob Webb once wrote a beautiful column that was basically predicated on the idea of, imagine what it would look like to see Ed Miliband eat a pear. Yeah. And he went I... through it bit by bit, and you were kind of like, yes, that is a problem Ed Miliband has. He's not a man you want to imagine eating a pear. <laughs> but is it a problem if Ed Miliband laughs about that? I think probably not, if he showed a little bit more kind of... Oh, I don't know, self-awareness, just, yeah, I'm a bit geeky sometimes, I look a bit weird. It's fine, don't worry about it, I can still run the country. Yeah, that's one way to avoid being bacon sandwiches, to just not care if you're bacon sandwiched. Do you remember the uh, glitter instance at the Labour Party conference? I do, mm. yeah. Because if you actually watch that, and I was watching it live at the time, Starmer looked briefly absolutely furious. For about a second or two, mm. you could see he was really, really angry. And then he got control of himself. And then he, you know, he managed to make a joke about it. So he, he didn't, you know, but you, you could just, you could... He had enough flicked across his face. Flick, yeah. yeah, it was it was remarkable to see. He was clearly very angry, but managed not to. Well, but that's some. I mean, that's what a lot of this stuff is. But when I write satire, what you're looking for is the thing that a politician's really like that they don't want you to know they're really like. So, like, I mean, Sunak has got. I mean, it's very easy to mock Sunak for his sort of his wealth and his aloofness and his privilege. But there's also there's rage in Sunak in a sort of Jeremy Corbyn way. 
And once you get a handle on that rage, you can really sort of you can really work with him as a character. Starmer hasn't got that kind of thing yet. I hope it's not just going to be rage as well, because that'll get repetitious, repetitious, but I can... Um, not just tetchiness, there's rage. There's rage, yeah. When is it, well, just out of interest, when has he been ragey, do you think? What, Sunak? Yes. Oh, well, you, I mean, it, it, it sort of, I mean, I guess it's sort of manifest in the in the tetchiness, but you can see, he. I mean, he hates being disagreed with. He, uh, he has absolute um, sort of disgust for people when they oppose him. When he's disagreed with even by an interviewer, he sort of bristles at the impunity of it, you know. Um, he's and, also very, uh, you know, he really puts down the interviewer in response. Yeah. He's he's not magnanimous in any way. You know, it, it, I, I've often thought, God, I wouldn't want to be opposite you because you just, yeah, it's, it's kind of um, general disgust at the, even being yeah. asked the question, as you say. But it doesn't look bullying. It looks insecure is the it, thing it, when he does true. it. That's yeah. true, yeah, because yeah. he hasn't got that powerful yeah. character. Hugo, do you think the Sun will endorse Labour in the general election? I'd be surprised. I mean, they have done before, albeit not for a while. I think the Conservative Party would have to really, really fall apart for that to happen. And I also think there's, I don't think Labour would have to do some sort of, some quite different things. I mean, I would say it's more likely that the Sun doesn't do an endorsement uh, because the Sun doesn't like losing. And if they endorse the Conservatives, it'll look like they've lost. But I would be surprised if they go the whole hog. And, I mean, I, don't, I, I wouldn't know, but I would be surprised. Does it does it even matter anymore? Because we don't know how many copies the Sun sells now because they keep it a secret. But it was down to 1.2 million. That was four years ago. So it's presumably even lower now post-pandemic. I don't think it ever mattered. I think, it's, I think people have this entirely the wrong way around. Newspapers don't endorse people to flex their power. They endorse people to show that they knew, like they knew what was what was going on all, all along. It's completely backwards. Newspapers endorse people to impress their readers, not the opposite. I think. But in that case, that would argue for the Sun endorsing Labour this time, since they do seem very likely to win the election. They might seem very likely to win the election. I'm not sure they'd win a majority of Sun readers. I can't imagine the Mail flipping to Labour or the Express. They're just too, too, too far gone that way. Other way, if Labour does win, will the right wing press stick to their guns and the same issues that they? keen on now or do you see any of them quietly switching allegiance to where the power is i don't think they'll quite switch allegiance but there are more complicated things that happen and if you remember there was that weird loving for a time between the telegraph and gordon brown mm. just because they sort of found themselves on the same page as finding david cameron intensely annoying you know so i think things like that can the happen mail on sunday was um turned against johnson at one point yeah sure yeah. and yeah. i can see there being uh Depending on what the Conservatives are doing at the time, I could see uh, elements of the right-wing press not really sort of getting along with them. And also, like newspapers like um, being close to power, they like being close to sort of to, to, to cabinets, and cabinets like being close to newspapers as well. Uh, and you know, these people—I mean, these people, these people are us—but still, these people do all know each other. They do rub shoulders, mm. you know. Um, so, um, yeah, up to a point. Hannah, you've been looking at the polling figures for voters under 50. What do they say? Oh, these are astonishing. Um, it's 60% Labour, which are not entirely surprising. We know all the trouble that um, you know under 50 is having around housing and so on, cost of living, mortgages, described 10% Tory. Again, not that surprising. But then if you have a look at everything together and you put together all the left and centre-left parties, SNP, Green and so on, it's 81% left and centre-left. Under, uh, under which edge? 50 and under. Jeez, yeah. 81%. You know, that's just really staggering. Obviously, when you go up the ages, it's it is much more like the old-fashioned 30, 25, 35, that kind of thing. But 
there's a real problem for the, the Tories, and they're really not engaging with the fact that they are genuinely aging out as a party if they don't do something in the next five years to fundamentally address the uh, you know economic status and security of under fifties, which is most of the population. Mm. <laughs> you know, most people still die in their eighties. This is most of the population. Well, this is where I think Miriam Cates and her sort of family strand of uh, whichever mm. of the f- yes, f- families of, of uh, Tory backbenchers are uh, uh, she belongs to is probably onto something in conservative terms, trying to appeal to families. Yeah, family policy specifically. Yeah. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes. Hannah, what's your escape route been? So I've been reading a novel which is not entirely like the novel I, the sort of novels I usually read. It's quite upbeat, but it's really excellent. It's called This Could Be Everything by an author called Eva Rice. Uh, I think it's her third novel. It's basically a story of um, overcoming grief and finding a new path even after everything in your life is destroyed. It's about a very young protagonist, a 19-year-old girl who has lost her both parents and her twin sister. And it's really about her emergence into life recovering from agoraphobia caused by that that grief and i mean it's set in in london in the 90s and it's very it's just brilliant it's it's really this kind of evocative picture of youth but also a youth uh damaged by experience anyway i highly recommend it i've also been reading a novel uh, i finished the uh, beasting by paul murray which uh, is extremely long novel it's like a real doorstepper like our mutual friend or something but uh, it didn't quite win the booker this year it was on the shortlist but maybe it should have done because it's it's uh, although it's very long it's incredibly in- involving and it's really well written and uh, i hadn't really got to grips with any sort of new wave of irish novelists yet and this is the first first one that i'd read but i was it was it was very very impressive hugo what have you been doing fargo Fargo on TV. So I'm, I'm a TV critic, so I watch yep. all the TV. And what that means is I've actually got quite a high bar for TV I end up watching for pleasure because I have to watch so much bloody TV, not for pleasure. Fargo's now in its fifth series. It's just tremendous. I think when I look back on the kind of... I've been a, I've been a critic now for, I don't know, 13 years, 14 years, something like that. Fargo's been running for about 10 of those years. I will have been a critic of the Fargo age. It's just the best thing on TV. Keeps hitting the mark. And I've got uh, Juno Temple starring in, starring in this one. You've got John Hamm as the villain, as this kind of sort of evil sheriff with nipple rings, which is just an amazing touch. <laughs> but just the way it manages to, um, not only just to sort of do the plot, but also to have this sort of worldview in the background of um, civilization being fragile and both kind of whimsy and monsters stemming from that. It's just so consistent. It's so well done. I could go on about it at length forever. What's it on? Which um... It's on Amazon Prime, this one. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Hannah. Thanks, Ros. And Hugo. Thank you very much. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Thursday for our backers and Friday morning for everyone else. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was written and presented by Roz Taylor with Hannah Fern and Hugo Rifkin produced by Chris Jones and Jacob Jarvis with audio production from me, Robin Lieber art is by Jim Parrott socials by Mike Bolland group editor is Andrew Harrison managing editor Jacob Jarvis and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production <laughs>